0: Well, good morning. Um, my name's Zach, and I'm the youth pastor here. I've been battling a bit of a cold over the past several weeks, it feels like now. I think I was, I think I was healthy in there for maybe a stretch of three days, but uh, I feel a little needy this morning. I've got some hot tea, back up cold water on the floor in case my throat starts to give out or I uh, start to cough. Uh, hopefully that will not happen. Hopefully I do not have to sniffle too much. Um, I was sitting there praising God uh, for the miracle of modern medicine, that I was able to take some uh, medicine this morning and feel uh, significantly better than I have the past couple of days. Um, But if you are new here, like I said, my name is Zach. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, I'm Zach Ellsworth, and I'm the youth pastor. And uh, next week, our pastor, Ben, uh, we'll begin a series through the book of Genesis that will take us up to Palm Sunday at the end of March. Um, so we find ourselves in between teaching series, uh, and because of that, I've been given the freedom to preach on anything this morning, and I have a bit of an odd starting point, but before I even do that, I, these slides, it, it might look like white on white. I promise you it was not on my computer. It, it there was more contrast. So if you have a hard time seeing that, I'm sorry. I will make it very clear where we're at in the Bible, and uh, we won't be jumping around too often. So if you do have a Bible or a phone or something in front of you, that will be of uh, a lot of help for you this morning. But uh, like I said, uh, I have a bit of an odd starting point, and and it's a question. It's are you familiar with the movie Trolls? Uh, if you know Hannah and I and Theo, we are all too familiar with that movie and if you have small children it's likely that the movie has been on your radar if not on your screen and if you are not familiar with the movie trolls you uh, would almost assuredly recognize the ugly troll dolls that the movie is based on. Now the movie itself now is is not quite so hideous as those original trolls and, and I'm sorry if I'm offending you those things are They're just kind of creepy. But the trolls in the movie are brightly colored. They're pink and blue and green. And like I said, instead of that kind of fleshly color uh, of the originals and the trolls, they love to sing and dance. They are, in fact, the embodiment of happiness. And, And the idea of the good life for the trolls is singing and dancing and partying and hugging and smiling and scrapbooking. Uh, So the entire plot of the movie just revolves around restoring that version of the good life, the version of the good life where happiness is friends and dancing to infectious pop music. And it's incredibly likely that, assuming you've even seen this movie in the first place, you've never thought of it in this way. You've never thought about it as more than a fun little movie about being happy or a cutesy attempt, if you're a little more cynical, to sell lots of merchandise. You've never thought about it as a quest for the good life, which is completely fine and normal because I hadn't either until I started looking for illustrations this past week. Um, But if you look at just about any story, the quest for the good life is at the heart of it. Uh, In some classic movies like The Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne, the story's protagonist, if you're familiar with it, uh, he works for years and years to escape prison and find freedom. It is ultimately a story about finding the good life. The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, is a journey undertaken to destroy evil in the world. Uh, Lot is sacrificed ultimately for the good life. And another very common popular story are the the Harry Potter stories where Uh, It's incredibly easy over the course of several books and all the different adventures and journeys to see beneath it all, underneath it all, driving it all forward, this quest for the good life. And so here we are, seven, right? It's the seventh, seven days into 2018. And I can guarantee that you, just like me, are also on a quest for The good life. There's some image in your mind of what you want life to look like. It's an idea in your head about the type of person that you want to be. And this is reflected in our culture's obsession with making New Year's resolutions. Regardless of what you think of the practice and whether or not a single resolution is kept in the entire world, and and sometimes that really is doubtful, New Year's resolutions highlight this simple fact that humans want The good life. Think of some of the most common resolutions. You want to lose weight. You want to be fit. You want to exercise and have a healthier diet. Or maybe you just want to spend more time with family. You spent a lot of 2017 working and and being busy and you just want to slow down. Or, Or maybe you want to save more money. Maybe you are looking to buy a home or you're looking to buy... Who knows what? But you want to save more money. You're looking to be prepared for the future. You want to learn something new or you want to make a difference in the world. Whatever it is, all of these things have something to say about your personal idea of the good life. Even if you don't make New Year's resolutions and you think they're silly, think of some of your personal goals. Are they anything like these common resolutions I just mentioned, be healthier, learn something, spend time with family, make a positive impact, have more financial security for our students, uh, get a spot in the play, uh, go to college, get to the college you want to go to, make the right grades, have the boyfriend or girlfriend that's going to make you popular. Whatever it is, all of these things, right, if you think of things like those kinds of things, the things you'd like to see happen in 2018, you will quickly piece together your idea of the good life. All of which raises the question, what is the good life? What does the Bible have to say about the good life? Do your hopes and my hopes and our hopes measure up to the Bible's standards? Not to mention the larger question that looms in the background, the answer to which you probably assumed without even realizing. Is the good life possible Is there such a thing as the good life? Is it even possible? Will you turn with me this morning to Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 1? Uh, Your bulletin probably might, well, does say 1 through 11. I made a uh, game time decision to go forward into verse 14, but that shouldn't uh, impact anything. Uh, You might be a little confused if you're not paying attention. Anyways, we're looking at Ecclesiastes 1, and like I said, we're starting in verse 1. And, and so as you're turning there, or f- turning it on or whatever you're doing, um, I'm aware that about two years ago, Ben preached a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you were around for those, and this sounds familiar, I'm glad it should. We are both preaching the Bible, and if it sounds not similar at all, one of us, probably me, is making a horrible mistake. So... If this sounds familiar to you, good, but also in the course of two years, it's likely that you've encountered lots of messages, lots of sermons. You've watched movies and TV shows and heard sermons here and listened to the radio and songs and and the message of Ecclesiastes that I think is so important has been pushed to the the, the fringes. It's pushed out and the beginning of 2018, I think, is a great time to, to bring it back and also this is what we're going to be doing as a youth group. And rather than doubling up and uh, studying two things and trying to make that work, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. Uh, but Ecclesiastes has been called the most contemporary or modern book of the Bible. And uh, it's, it's a book that can be very challenging, um, but it is a book that's been given to us by the very same God who gave us the Psalms and Gospels. And I'm going to have to take a drink because my voice is getting squeaky. Excuse me. Um, so while the message of Ecclesiastes, if you aren't familiar, it can be unsettling. My belief is that you aren't really reading the Bible if it doesn't sometimes make you uncomfortable. Like you aren't really encountering God in his word if it doesn't sometimes make you tremble and squirm. Um, that being said, this verse has been up a long time, but let's pray and then we'll look at the text. Dear Heavenly Father, um, Help me get through this message, um, sustain me, sustain my voice and uh, my nose and my cough and all those things. Um, God, not that uh, I wouldn't embarrass myself or that I would be seen as smart or some kind of good preacher, uh, but just to be free from distractions that we'd hear from you this morning and that you'd be glorified and that uh, nothing I would do would take away from the work that you are doing here this morning. Uh, Thank you for these people who have come out to join us um, in this brutally cold weather. Thank you for the uptick that it's getting a little warmer. Um, Help us just to rejoice in everything that you've given to us and everything that's happening, uh, even if it's a gray, gloomy January day in Fishers, Indiana. Uh, Be with us as we come under your word that you would... Uh, reward the work that I've put in this week and that our hearts, mine included, would be filled and that we would leave this place and go out this week um, standing on your word and living uh, by faith and in love uh, for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name, I pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to turn our attention now to Ecclesiastes 1 and those first two verses. They say, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Before we go any further this morning, I need to make sure, we need to make sure that we are all on the same page. We have to understand this verse if we're going to understand Ecclesiastes and God's word about the good life, the good life set forward in Ecclesiastes, because the whole book, this whole book flows from this verse. It's a motto of sorts for everything that comes after it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So what does this mean? Most of us probably, or maybe all of us are somewhat or at least vaguely familiar with the word vanity, uh, but But we need to understand what it means here, because here's a here's a fun fact about the Bible is not a single one of us uh, comes to the Bible without baggage. We all come as we open up our Bible to read it and study it with opinions and assumptions and ideas that influence our understanding of what we're reading. And that's not evil. That's not sinful. It's not necessarily bad. But if we don't check that, if we aren't aware of that and careful of that, it can cause Confusion and complications and misunderstandings. And so how you understand vanity as it is used in the book of Ecclesiastes here this morning matters. Uh, Vanity in this sense obviously isn't a place to do your makeup and hair and, and sit and look in a mirror. But neither does it refer here to pride or arrogance as if somehow it's saying everything is prideful, which wouldn't make any sense anyways. This is a place where a knowledge of the original word, the, the Hebrew word, gives us a lot of help. It helps us to grasp a better understanding of the text. And I like to do this. I don't read. I, I barely read Greek. I don't read Hebrew. I've said this before. I know how to use Google um, and I know how to read books. And so I don't read Hebrew. But as you look at this, the, the original word there that that we translate as vanity is Hevel. It's Hevel and it's. Translated as vanity, or if you're looking at the NIV, I believe it's meaningless. And there are other versions that will say futility, or pointless, or or some variation, some kind of flavor of that. But the word hevel, that Hebrew word, is most literally translated as vapor. It's the idea of a mist, or smoke, or a breath on a cold, cold day. It's a vapor. It's not necessarily Bad, but it carries with it the idea of being fleeting, of being very temporary. A breath only lasts a short moment. Your breath on a cold winter day and, and the vapor it creates, right, they disappear right before your very eyes. And not only that, but your breath or, or smoke or vapor, or whatever it is, you, you can't grab it. If there's smoke out there or there's vapor and you reach for it, it just scatters and disappears. It's insubstantial. It's there But it isn't. You can see it, but you can't grasp it. You might even refer to it as an illusion of sorts. So a vapor is vanity. So here we read vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It stresses, right? That word just shows up over and over. You can't miss it, and it stresses the intensity of it. Like calling something the worst of the worst, right? Out of all the worst things in the world, this one is the worst of them all. Or when you call something that when in the Bible when it refers to the place in the temple as the holy of holies, it's saying out of all the holy places, this is the holiest of them all. So right here when it says vanity of vanities, it's saying out of all all the fleeting, ooh, excuse me, all the fleeting things, right? Thank you. All the fleeting things. Um, Out of all the fleeting things, uh, when it says vanity of vanity, all the insubstantial things, all the meaningless things, all the illusory things, it is vanity par excellence. It is vanity. But what is it? Well, it's obvious you might not even have. Really ask that question. Verse 2 tells us that it all is vanity. Everything is the most fleeting. Everything is the most insubstantial. Everything is the most illusory. So let's continue reading uh, in verse 3. It says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. And hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In these verses we see that nature and humanity both all right, nature and human civilization both seem to always be moving forward, always making progress, always changing. Uh, but in reality, nothing is really changing. It's like the old saying goes that the more things change, the more they stay the same. The, the changes are all like vapor. You see them, but there's nothing to grab onto. They're insubstantial, they're vanity. See, as, as people age and one generation passes, A new generation just comes in and replaces them. It it looks like change, but soon that new generation will become the old generation, making way for another new generation, and it's the same cycle over and over. And through all that, you know what else doesn't change? The earth, the earth remains the same. Look at the sun. It rises and it sets only to rise again, again on this cycle. Just busy, busy, busy doing the same thing over and over. But what is it gaining? What has it accomplished? The wind, it's the same story. The wind blows to the north and to the south. Around and around it goes. What's it doing? What's it gained? It talks about the rivers flowing down to the ocean and constantly going and flowing, but the ocean never filling. And sure, we understand the, the water cycle. And, and I don't doubt that the author of Ecclesiastes was familiar with some kind of idea of that. But the point, the illustration remains. All this work is accomplished. All this work is done. The mightiest rivers, the Mississippi River flows down. But nothing seems to change. And the water just goes back. And nothing is gained so at this point in Ecclesiastes, it stops looking at nature and looks at humanity and, and, and mentions how just like a river or just like the sun or just like the wind is always working. Your eyes and your ears are always working. They're always hearing. They're always seeing, but they're never being filled. You, you don't like you don't look at the Grand Canyon and just so, wow, and just close your eyes and never open them ever again. You don't do that with beautiful music or, or anything like that. You're we're constantly looking. For that next thing, nothing is gained. Um, It also mentions how there's nothing new under the sun, which can be a bit confusing because you look around and uh, when this was written, whenever it was written, there were absolutely not electric guitars. There were not lights. There were not iPhones and microphones and all of these different fancy things. But, But the point here isn't, about new inventions or innovations, it's it's the idea of it. It's the they all fall into these same categories of old things. Whether it's communication with a microphone that's making this possible, because if I had a cold and I was projecting, this would not work. Um, or transportation, or agriculture, whatever it is. Right? We don't we don't read this verse in the Bible and then pick up our iPhone, or more ironically, read it on our iPhone and then say, "Well, this can't be right. This can't be right." Like it all falls apart because. Because there's something new and you're holding it. That's not the point. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before, whether it's communication or transportation or agriculture, whatever it might be. And the last point made in these verses is that our memory is bad. We don't remember things. Um, People don't remember things. You won't be remembered. A rather famous example, a startling or or, a very good example of this is, uh, once upon a, ch- a time, John Lennon said in an interview that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus and that they'd last longer than Christianity. And uh, I'm fairly confident that if we went into our youth room and I asked anybody to name the Beatles, we m- might have two or three who can do that. And-, and so as the Beatles are slowly being forgotten, the Church of Jesus Christ continues to grow. Or think about your own family. I'm extremely To my shame, guilty of this. But how many generations back can you go by name? Just by name, not to mention who they were, who they were married to, uh, what their kids' names were, what they did for a living, where they lived, anything. We can't even do that. Most things, right, they don't last more than a generation or two before they're forgotten. So look back at verse 3 with me, where it says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What is gained by all of your work, by all of my work? We look at the sun and the wind and the rivers, and they gain nothing. We consider humanity and realize that people and things are quickly forgotten. And so the answer to the question, what does man gain by all the work, is nothing. Nothing is gained. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us. Excuse me. So if you did not know, Ecclesiastes is Presented as a speech we're being spoken to as we read this book. And these are not the words of a young man experiencing the pain of his first broken heart. Uh, how can I go on living? What I'll never love again. It's, it's not that. It's not, the, it's not the words of some 20-something coming home from college after one semester and, and telling everybody he knows everything because he read some popular book. This is not a senile old man telling fish stories where the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger with every repetition. If we look at Ecclesiastes in verse 12 and we continue there, we'll see what the preacher, this man, says about himself. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. So when, what we've read this morning is to be understood as the words and wisdom of King Solomon himself. Um, whether, well, I won't even get into the whole authorship of the book. If you would like to talk with me or Ben, I'm sure we'd both be willing to. Uh, but these words are to be taken as words from King Solomon. And if anybody was ever suited to make big, broad, sweeping statements, it was Solomon. Because that, that man, the best way I could think to say it is just that man lived. He lived. The book of Ecclesiastes says he sought out and found all wisdom he acquired great wealth and indulged all of his passions he was wise king solomon was rich and king solomon was powerful he had as we read in verse 14 seen everything that is done under the sun yet it was all vanity he calls it striving after wind this is another important theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, we have vanity and we have a striving after wind that help to uh, illustrate one another. So what would it look like to strive after wind? Uh, perhaps, you know, it might be helpful if we use the word other than strive. Strive is not the most frequently used word. It might give you ideas of straining, veins popping out of your head or sweating. or I, I'm not even sure. A lot of times this word is translated as chase. So what about chase? How would it look to chase after the wind. It looked ridiculous. After all, there's nothing to chase. There's nothing to catch. You might run with the wind. You might even run like the wind, but you will not. You cannot catch the wind. And so from these verses, the words of King Solomon were left with nothing but to agree with verse 13 that it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So is this the outlet our outlook I want you to carry into 2018? Is this the outlook I'm carrying into 2018? Is this how I want us to approach the new year as a church, that it's an unhappy business? And more importantly, uh, is this outlook being prescribed to us by God through his word? Everything is meaningless and life stinks. As I've already mentioned, many people find Ecclesiastes challenging for this very Reason They wonder how this message, this message of darkness and depression, fits in with the rest of the Bible. The, main, the Bible's main ingredients of faith, hope, and love seem to be absent, leaving at best a bitter, bitter taste in our mouths. So how does Ecclesiastes fit? How does this message of hopelessness and vanity fit? Maybe, if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, you already know the answer. Or if you noticed my slide, I don't know if when that happened. That's okay. If you noticed my slide, that was up there to begin the sermon. It's three simple words that show up over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Three simple words, under the sun. Verses 3, 9, and 14 all include the phrase under the sun. So what does it mean to be under the sun? Again, you, you might have a good idea if you have a good memory, and you were here two years ago to hear this, you might remember, or if you've spent time in Ecclesiastes or you're familiar with it, you might know, but if you are not sure, consider verse 13 where it says, under heaven, right? Under the sun is Ecclesiastes' way of creating a sharp divide between heaven and earth, between God and his creation. The the perspective of Ecclesiastes is with feet firmly planted on the ground, with eyes rising no higher than the horizon, never looking up. If there is no God and life is completely lived under the sun, then there is no hope. There is no point. There is no meaning. It is all fleeting. It's all here for a moment, then gone forever. It's all illusory. It's all a vapor. It's all vanity. This is why Albert Camus who is a philosopher that you likely don't recognize the name of, and that is completely understandable, but Albert Camus said that the only serious question in life, right, and this was a philosopher, he spent his time thinking about the meaning of life and what it meant to be human and what it meant to exist and what we ought to do and what was good and bad, and he spent all this time thinking and he came to the conclusion that the only question, the only thing that really mattered, the only answer he needed was suicide. It was suicide. As, as an atheist, he had come to the same conclusion that we find here in Ecclesiastes. All is vanity, a striving after wind. there's nothing to be gained under the sun, and he was only left to wonder why he should continue living at all. If this sounds completely absurd and entirely unchristian, that's good. It should. It shouldn't sound biblical to you. It should sound foreign, but it's also deeply and brutally honest. If you are confined completely to the realm under the sun, separated from heaven, apart from God, life is a vapor. It is fleeting. It is illusory. It is insubstantial. And the good life is not possible All your working, all your toiling, will leave you the same as chasing the wind, empty-handed. Which brings us back to our original question, is the good life possible? Frankly, I don't think I've convinced anyone in this room that it's not. Maybe I have. Maybe some doubt has crept into your mind, but you're still holding on to hope. You're waiting for the punchline. You're waiting for the explanation, the way out, and it's coming. It's coming. For Christians, Ecclesiastes ends in this way in verse our chapter 12 um, in verse 13 It says the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, it might not be immediately obvious from this verse, but the way out is the missing ingredients. We mentioned earlier, faith, hope, and love. If we want to live the good life, you need faith to recognize that there is more than what we see under the sun. Faith to fear God and keep his commandments. Faith that is not merely mental. It's not just a knowledge in your head, but it is practice. It's the type of trust that comes when someone trustworthy makes a promise. Someone reputable signs a deal. This is a faith that leads to action. If you are to live in the world as Ecclesiastes describes it, then you must have faith that God will keep his promises, both of wrath and mercy. Faith that God is who he says he is and can do what he say, he'll say or he says he will do. Faith that there is a God. Um, that has both the power to destroy uh, body and soul, Um, faith that you can be washed free from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have faith in the one who sits enthroned in the heavens and laughs as we live in the vapor of life under the sun. See, you need hope that no matter what happens here in this life under the sun, No matter what vanity, whatever vapor, whatever thing that doesn't seem right, whatever happens, God we trust, the God we trust in, the God you have faith in is a righteous judge and that things will be set right in eternity. See, Ecclesiastes goes on to observe that sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And that doesn't seem to make sense in a world where God is good and just and righteous and holy. But when bad things happen... To good, godly, faithful people. Remember that life under the sun is a vapor. It is fleeting. And by faith, you look forward to the future with hope, with confidence and full expectancy that the things that seem wrong now will one day be put together and made right. That, that what sounds just like a loud, noisy cymbal clashing and it's empty and it's absurd and it's, it's happening here now under the sun will one day find place. When at last you hear God's full orchestra in eternity. And lastly, you need love because love fulfills the whole law. Love God and love your neighbor. This is the whole law of God. If you want to know if you're of God, if you want to know if you know God, examine how well you love. Examine how well you put others ahead of yourself. How often you give up your opinions, your preferences, and put others ahead of yourself to their benefit. Not using people Uh, Not giving someone what they want so that you can get something from them later, but truly laying your life down for someone else. You look to Christ, and if your life looks like that, denying yourself, even to the point of loss, you can be confident that the Spirit of God is at work in you. So we need faith for the courage to act now. Hope to find joy as you look to the future in spite of what oftentimes feels fleeting and insubstantial here under the sun. And love to God that overflows into a love for your neighbors. This is the only good life the Bible knows. Whatever else you do, whether it's travel or exercise or diet or you're in a transition at work and you're excited and you're nervous or if you have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews on the way, whatever it might be if you want to save more money, if you want to learn something new, make a difference in the world, if you want to live the good life in 2018, let your life be saturated by faith, hope, and love. This is the only good life that the Bible knows, and it is the life that was ultimately lived by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ trusted God the Father unwaveringly. When tempted in the wilderness, he did not cease to obey the Father. When the crucifixion drew near, He prayed that the plan could work itself out some other way, but still his faith never faltered. He never lost trust in God his Father, that God his Father would be true to his word. The Bible says that he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And that obedience was from, like I said, a faith, a confident assurance in God the Father that he would keep his promises. Jesus hoped for, he confidently awaited his exaltation. He confidently awaited, he hoped for his resurrection, his vindication. He confidently waited to be raised to the right hand of God, ruling over the heavens with the earth as his footstool. So as hell literally, literally broke loose around him, as thorns were pressed into his head, as he suffocated, hanging from a cross, he looked past his present moment to the future, and the hope of glory. And lastly, Jesus loved. He loved his father. He loved his enemies. He loved the weak and the poor and the outcasts. He loved the disciples through all their mistakes. And he, he even loved the Pharisees as they challenged him and he challenged them back. And ultimately, in love, he laid down his life based on that trust in God's character and God's promises and a hope that he would be raised from the dead in order that we... Sinners might be made righteous and share in his resurrection. That is the good life according to the Bible. And it was perfectly lived by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's a life lived under the sun, yes, but with head and heart in the heavens. Through faith in Christ, we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit in order that we might be conformed into that very image, the image of Christ one degree at a time. Therefore, in 2018, whatever else you do, whatever goals you pursue, realize that we do live life here under the sun. And there is one over the sun, right? We live life here under the sun and we look and it feels meaningless at times. It can look empty. It can be confusing. It seems unjust. And things aren't fair and things aren't going how we want them to. We need to remember, we need to have faith that there is one over the sun, who never needs to chase the wind because he commands it where to go. And that no matter what this year may bring, the good life is life lived with eternity, not only in mind, but at your center, influencing and shaping everything that you do. And all of this is ultimately found, eternity, salvation, faith, hope, and love in the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for these people, for uh, bringing them here this morning, for um, hopefully working through me as I preach and I strain and I squeak and I sniffle. um, God, that it would just be an image, a representation that you don't need people to be strong and you don't need them to have all the answers or, or to be perfect, but you use broken, sick, weak people, and and really that's all you've got. Um, So thank you that you're a good and gracious and loving God to do those things. Um, God, I pray that as we go from here this week that we wouldn't uh, be hung up on the the seeming despair or distress or depression or darkness of Ecclesiastes, but that we would look forward from that book uh, to Jesus Christ who has come. And so we don't read Ecclesiastes as one without Christ who is come to bring us back to you and to save us and to show us that uh, there is a God uh, over the sun. Um, Be with us as we go. Keep us safe. And uh, God, help everybody else who feels like me feel better. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.